This sermon is titled Progressing. It is a second part of two parts to the three verses of Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles or your devices, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3. We'll read these verses momentarily. But I just want to say what I just prayed is that it's God's will for each believer to be progressing spiritually. And so three questions, maybe four. One, We need to ask individually, am I progressing spiritually? Second, how do I know if I am or I am not spiritually progressing? Three, who is the best judge of my spiritual progression? Is it me? Is it a believer that's growing in themselves that knows me? We're going to seek to answer some of these questions in this message. To review, last time in these verses 1 to 3 of Hebrews 6, we observed that there are six foundational parts that all must be in place for any Christian to progress in the things of God. A six-part foundation upon which we can build a progressing Christian spiritual life. We looked at two of those foundation parts last time. The part of repentance from dead works, and the part of faith toward God. If you look and let your eye see verse 1, the second part, but I'll read the whole verse. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, the Christ, let us press on to maturity, here it is, not laying again a foundation of repentance from good works. One of the parts of the foundation of progression in spiritual life is to have repentance, a turning away from dead works, in our Christian lives. That was a stone we covered last week. A second foundational stone to spiritual progression we also covered last week and comes at the very end of verse 1. I'll read the verse again to get the flow. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and here it is, of faith toward God. If we are going to progress spiritually, uh, then we're going to have to have faith toward God, not just a Sunday faith toward God, but a constant faith toward God. That ought to characterize us as progressing Christians, that we have a faith toward God. Now, going back to this repentance from dead works part of the foundation, repentance toward God from uh, dead works, is to have no hidden sins in our uh, lives, to turn from evil to the light, to uh, note that generally speaking, uh, those of us who are parents, when our kids were little, generally speaking, children hate the dark, they're fearful of it, and they love the light. So I told you last week that when our children were very little, sometimes they would come into our bedroom because they were afraid of the dark. Maybe there's a thunderstorm or they heard a noise or something. And they'd come in and say, can we lie in your bed? Because their children, generally speaking, are afraid of the dark and they love the light. Well, we are children of God, but we are also children of the light. According to 1 Thessalonians 5, it says of all Christians, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So we who believe in Jesus Christ and are saved 
Because we are children of light, one of the foundation parts for progressing spiritually is that we have a repentance toward dead works that could be characterized as darkness, and we have an inclination, a habit, of having faith toward God. So those are the first two parts of the foundation for spiritual progression we saw last time. Now we'll move on to the four remaining parts in this foundation for spiritual progression. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 to give you the whole flow, but our focus is only on verses 1 to 3 today. So as I'm reading 1 through 8, would you particularly focus and listen closely to verses 1 to 3? But I'm reading 1 to 8. Therefore, having the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we shall do if God permits. For in in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then, and then, have fallen away, it is impossible to renew again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Verse 8. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And so circling back and focusing in on verses 1 to 3, after the first part of the foundation for progression, repentance from dead works, the second part, faith toward God, now a new part of this foundation for today, instruction about washings. I see that in the first part of verse 2, of instruction about washings. In the Old Testament, there were a variety of washings that the law of God for the Jews prescribed. They were all ceremonial washings, but they had one thing they were illustrating. These Old Testament ceremonial washings that were from the law of God were to be outward signs of inner hearts made clean by God. The Jew in the Old Testament was to partake of certain ceremonial washings. Why? So that it could be outwardly visible, hopefully, what was an inner reality of having a clean heart because of God's forgiveness. Of course, in the New Testament, um, there is a reference to these Old Testament ceremonial washings, but the reference is made to say that the Old Testament ceremonial washings have been improved upon in the New Testament. In fact, they've actually been replaced in the New Testament. And in the New Testament verse of Titus 3, verse 5, always wise to let Scripture be a commentator on Scripture. So Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, not of water, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is saying, yes, there were washings in the Old Testament, but these Old Testament ceremonial washings are not to be part of the foundation upon which you build a spiritually progressing life in New Testament times, in the church age. No, the washing you need to build upon to progress spiritually is to be regenerated. And the moment a person trusts Jesus Christ to be Savior, the Spirit of God immediately regenerates, washes, enlivens a dead spirit. And so if you're saved, you've got this building block. You've got this building block of regeneration. You don't have to ask for it. You've got it. When you trusted Jesus to be Savior, bing, you received regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's a part of this foundation for progression. Let's move on to the fourth part of this foundation. It's the laying on of hands. I see that in verse 2. Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the Jew was instructed to lay his hands on a sacrificial animal that was to be sacrifice as a blood sacrifice to cover the sins of the Jew and his family who put their hands on the sacrificial animal and identified themselves with that animal. If you'd like to read the Old Testament on this, Leviticus 1, verses 1 to 5, and Leviticus 16, verses 21 to 22. So that was the Old Testament. God said, get a sacrificial animal, lay hands on it, kill it, shed its blood, and by touching the animal, laying hands on it, you will identify with the sacrifice the animal makes and your sins will be covered. Now, in the New Testament, in this church age, believers have learned through Scripture that we are invited by God to identify ourselves not with a goat or a sheep that would be sacrificed, but rather we are to identify ourselves with a sin-bearer Savior that we read about in Isaiah 53 in this service. We are to identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the supreme blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that ends all blood sacrifices. The once-for-all sacrifice is the Lord Jesus And we're to identify ourselves with him as our sin bearer, as our sin payment maker. And how do we identify with him? Well, by what we just did in the ordinance of believers, uh, Lord's Supper. When we come to the, the Lord's Supper and we let the Spirit of God search our hearts for unconfessed sin, and we look to that wafer, that symbol of Jesus Christ's sinless life, when we look to that cup of juice as a symbol of Jesus' shed blood, we are identifying with that Savior. We are identifying with that sacrifice, as it were, by laying our hands not on a goat, laying our hands not on a sheep, but laying our hands on the communion elements, taking hold of those communion elements that are memorials of Jesus Christ's perfect, complete, satisfactory blood sacrifice for us. So there's another ordinance that gives us opportunity to identify with Jesus. It's not as frequent as the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper 
uh, once a month at this point, on the first Sunday of the month, as you know. But there's another ordinance that gives a believer in Christ the way to publicly identify with Jesus, and it's believer's baptism in water. And you've seen, as I've baptized believers who want to publicly identify with Jesus Christ, uh, that I lower them in the water, saying, buried with him, Christ, buried with him through baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. The water baptism ordinance is an identifying with Jesus Christ in a public way. It's already happened in a private way. We don't baptize anybody publicly until they've been Holy Spirit baptized privately. What we do in the water is to make visible what's been done invisibly by the Holy Spirit at conversion. But that's another way that we identify with Jesus Christ, not just the Lord's Supper once a month, but also believer's baptism in water. And if you're not baptized in water as a believer, you ought to be. What soldier doesn't wear the uniform of his army? If you're not baptized in water as a believer, you ought to be. What restaurant changes management in the menu and doesn't put a sign in the window under new management? To be a believer in Jesus and not to, to refuse believer's baptism in water is just not to wear the uniform and not to put the under new management sign in the window. You could talk to us if you want to be water baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. By the way, it's doubtful to me if believers are going to properly spiritually progress if they neglect the Lord's Supper or if they refuse believers' baptism in water. So we've seen a couple of foundation parts on spiritual progression. We've seen the the part of instruction about washings. We've seen the part about laying on of hands. And the fifth part of six is the resurrection of the dead. Look in verse two, please. Of the instruction about washings and laying on of hands and, here it is, the resurrection of the dead a foundational part that you and I must have in order to progress in the things of Christ is a belief, a rock-solid, unshakable, unwavering belief in bodily resurrection. You really can't be a Christian unless you believe in bodily resurrection. There are some people who tell me I'm a Christian, but I believe in karma. You can't be a Christian and believe in karma but not resurrection. The resurrection is part and parcel, um, an unnegotiable part of the gospel because it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5, the gospel is defined and it says, now I make known to you, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, now I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received in which you stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He's saying, this is the word I preached to you. I'm distilling it down to one or two sentences and you have to believe the propositional truth in these one or two sentences that make up the gospel or you're not saved. And what is that? Verse three, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's one half of the gospel, that Christ died in the place of sinners. What's the second part? And that he was buried. That proved that he died. They didn't bury living people. And that he was raised on the third day. That's bodily resurrection, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and it goes on to say to 500. 
The gospel by which we are saved is Christ died for us and he arose from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is basic, fundamental, um, required for salvation. And so when we go to that grave to lay to rest the body of our loved one, we believe in resurrection. And when we consider our own mortality, that we are going to die someday, we believe in resurrection because it's part of the gospel and it's a foundation stone of advancement. What's the sixth part of the foundation? Still in verse 2. Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And eternal judgment. That is hell. We believe in hell. Some who say they're Christians don't. But their denial of hell doesn't make it stop existing. And in the Old Testament, there's a clear uh, reference to a literal hell in Psalm 69, 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. That's a prayer of the psalmist for those who don't believe in Yahweh, the living God. Psalm 52, 5, but God will break you down forever. When the psalmist prayed for an imprecation or um, a recompense or a consequence for his enemies who didn't believe in his God, he didn't ask for them to be broken down temporarily. He says forever. After resurrection, hell. Or uh, Psalm 83, uh, verses 17 and 18. Again, same idea. The psalmist writes of his enemies that reject his God. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. That's hell. And let them be humiliated and perish. That's conscious torment in a conscious, literal hell. The Old Testament teaches that there's eternal judgment and there's an eternal hell. And of course, so does the New Testament. It's called the lake of fire in Revelation 20. I'm just going to read verse 10 and verse 15, the kind of the bookends of that passage. Revelation 20, 10 to 15 is the whole passage. I'm just going to read you the bookends to that passage. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented forever and ever. Conscious torment forever. That's hell. Verse 15, now we're not talking about the Antichrist and his false prophet. At verse 15, we're talking about people, persons, who didn't run to refuge in Christ by faith when they were living. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It doesn't say he, stopped, he stops existing. He's not annihilated. He continues to exist, body, resurrected body, soul, and spirit, eternally exist and suffer in hell. And the person who is progressing in the things of God believes in hell. And what difference does it make to believe in hell? It motivates you to tell some people that are on their way to it, to tell them about the way of escape while they still can trust Christ. It motivates evangelism, at least it should. Another passage you can read on your own is Mark 9, 43 to 48, about the New Testament teaching about hell. Now, let me begin to land this plane. Spiritual progression 
requires the four foundation parts we've covered today plus the two foundation parts which we covered last time. And let's do a little inventory. The man in the pulpit will do an inventory on himself, and I invite all of you to do an inventory on yourselves as well. This little spiritual progress inventory is individual. You can't grade your spouse. You can't grade your parents. It's individual, and it's private. It's between you and God. And it's silent. I want us to continue to be silent as this little inventory on spiritual progression is undertaken. And it's now. I want that inventory not to be this afternoon, but now. Ready? The first part of the foundation of a spiritually progressing Christian, I ask you and me, how are you with repentance from dead works? When nobody's looking, have you fully turned away from actions and attitudes that dishonor Christ? Or could it be that you would be embarrassed if you were caught on videotape when you thought you were alone? Persons who are spiritually progressing don't hide skunks under their shirts. Pastor Tim Keller, New York City pastor, said, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules while real repentance says, I broke God's heart. What are you concerned about, breaking God's rules or breaking God's heart? The Christian who has repented from dead works is most concerned about breaking God's heart. Second question for our spiritual progress inventory, how are you with faith toward God? I'm not asking you if you've got saving faith, if you trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you after saving faith, are you living with faith toward God? Are you walking by faith and not by sight? What does walking by faith and not by sight look like? Well, I would submit to you that a person who's walking by faith and not by sight finds out what God's will is for them in his holy book and then does that revealed will of God 100% with reckless abandon, not concerned about the consequence for such obedience or the circumstances they will find themselves in for such obedience. The person who's walking by faith and not by sight wants to know what the Bible says and that doesn't want to know what the Bible says just to be educated, wants to know what the Bible says to be transformed to take risks so that in obeying the revealed will of God in the word of God, to take risks about the consequences that obedience will put you in. What will my husband think? What will my wife think? What will my employer think? Leave that to God. If you're walking by faith and not by sight, you're saying, I'm going to obey God. Come what may. I don't care what the consequences are for obeying God. I don't care what the circumstances might be created for obeying God. I am going to obey God. That's a person who walks by faith and not by sight. Let's continue with the spiritual progression inventory. Silent, personal. Number three, foundation part. How are you with having been washed? Are you regenerated? Are you saved? 
Has the Holy Spirit come in when you transferred your trust to Christ alone for salvation and scrubbed you up, made you alive when you were dead, made you clean where you were dirty? Has he invaded you, the Holy Spirit of God? He doesn't just creep in to live in a corner of your life. When you're genuinely saved, he comes in to make you alive from when you were dead, and he comes to take over. He wants to take over. Has he taken over? Are you spiritually responsive to him and the word of God? That's a good question to ask ourselves and to fix if it's not true of us. Number four, foundation part four. How are you with being identified with Jesus and his payment for your sins? Now, I mentioned this earlier in the message about water baptism. Have you been water baptized? since trusting Christ to be your Savior. I'm not talking about when you were christened maybe in some other church and a little water was put on your head as a baby. I'm not talking about that because babies don't know about sin, substitution, or faith in Christ, do they? I'm talking about when you've come to saving faith in Christ, have you been immersed in the sea or in the baptistry waters to picture the old you is dead and a new, a new you is living? It's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. And like I said earlier, I'm convinced that a person who doesn't take the Lord's Supper regularly and a Christian who doesn't get water baptized is going to get stuck in their spiritual progression, just stuck, not spinning wheels. Going back to resurrection, this is the self-progress inventory. How are you with believing in the resurrection of the dead? As I said, that believers don't believe in reincarnation, that you come back as something else. That's Hindu. Believers in Jesus Christ don't believe in annihilation, that God just zaps you at the great white throne judgment and you are no more. You cease to exist. The Bible does not teach that. What the Bible does teach is bodily resurrection. By the way, With this idea of reincarnation, this Hindu idea of reincarnation, they use the term karma. I hear it on television all the time. That's his karma, that's her karma, that's my karma, whatever. By the way, karma is you get what you deserve. Christianity is Jesus got what you deserve. Karma is you get what you deserve. Christianity is Jesus got what you deserve, the wrath of God. Jesus got what we deserve. And so, do we believe that there's life after death? Do we believe that there's bodily resurrection? I trust that we do. And the sixth and final part of this foundation upon which we are to build a spiritually progressing Christian life is how are you with eternal judgment? And I've said earlier in the message that Uh, The Bible teaches it. Jesus taught it. Jesus taught a lot about hell. And if a person doesn't believe in hell, do you know what they wind up rendering meaningless? The person who says, I do not believe in a literal hell, renders meaningless the following things. God's holiness and judgment. The vileness of sin. Meaningless if you don't believe in hell. The cross of Christ. Meaningless if you don't believe in hell. The blood evangelism, missions, all meaningless if you don't believe in hell. Heaven being a gated community, 
Jesus Christ and not Satan getting the final say of human history. If you don't believe in a hell, then to you, all these things are meaningless. We believe that there is a hell to be avoided and a heaven to be gained. And we believe a person's response to Jesus Christ and the gospel is how that is sorted out. We believe that there is a hell and it's God's right to populate it. And so to wrap up, to land the plane, are you spiritually progressing? And who should evaluate that? Well, I'll tell you, it's not yourself because my heart is, dece- is deceitfully wicked and I can't even know my own heart. It's not me. It's not Beth because she doesn't know everything in my heart and life. It's the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, the psalmist said. The great thing is that God wants us to progress. I just want to end with verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. What a curious verse. What does that mean? After the foundation is laid, the writer of Hebrews says, and this we shall do if God permits. This is what it means. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, I want to spiritually progress just like you do as readers of this epistle. And I'll tell you humbly, sincerely, as your pastor, I want to progress spiritually and need to progress spiritually, even as you progress spiritually and you need to progress spiritually. May the Lord continue to bless the preaching of his word.